Welcome to the Miller and Killer Show on your legitimate podcast. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning into the podcast today. We appreciate you taking the time. As always, if you can, leave some comments, suggestions, 17-star ratings, whatever you can. Real quick, uh, myself and Killer, we talk about axe history today, really sort of uh, deep diving into Kelly axe history and what that looked like from about 1890 up until about 1970, and along the way talking about the death of the axe as we know it. So give it a listen. Let us know what you think. Everybody have a good day. Thank you. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response, were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. You know, Lloyd, just when I think you couldn't possibly be any dumber, you go and do something like this. And totally redeem yourself! Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Your Legitimus Podcast. It's May 26th here, 2020. Hope everybody had a great Memorial Day and a great Memorial Day weekend. I know that we had some great weather here in Pennsylvania, and we were able to enjoy that uh, really well. So I'm very, uh, very happy with that and had a great weekend. Uh, as always, we have myself, Mike Miller, and we have our co-host, Chris Callinger, and we were bringing you the Miller and Killer show here on the Legitimus podcast. So, so, Killer, what's been going on out in your neck of the woods there, bud? Well, we had a lot of rain the last week. I was on vacation and it rained, I think, every day. So, put a real dampener on all my plans. But the last few days have been absolutely gorgeous, but insanely hot. <laughs> so, yeah, it has been. I know we're going to hit the big 9-0 here today in Pennsylvania. Yeah. we. Uh, I got some work done on my deck, and then I built a new goat hutch and upgraded my chicken hutch and moved the goats. The goats now are officially away from the house, and they are not, they are not happy about it at all. <laughs> I, think they, I think they like us being around them. Want a little interaction and a little, uh, a little talking to their humans, huh? Yeah. A little camaraderie. Yep. But, you know, they have a job to do and I don't want them to lose, lose focus on that. Yeah. Yeah. That's all right. That's what they're there for. They'll, they'll do their job. They'll come around, but. Yeah. What's the cleanup? I know with everything going on, it's been pretty interesting. Uh, last week, I was actually able to get out and about a little bit on Friday and did that over in the great state of Ohio, so over by your way. Stopped at a couple of antique places, stopped at a flea market alongside the road. And as I was telling you earlier, it's basically the Wild West over Ohio, people doing whatever they want to do, mask, no mask. Yeah, I, I saw there was a ton of people at the uh, at the flea market Elderly people, no mask, run around doing whatever they want. I was like, hey, what are you going to do? So that was interesting. Supposedly, um, my county here in Pennsylvania, we're going green on Friday, which I don't know exactly what that means. I got to look that back up. But I think a lot of the restaurants, places like that are going to be able to open, but it's only at a certain capacity. It's like 50 percent. So I'm not sure how that's all going to go down. People are pretty pretty fed up with that and just want to open things up. But uh, I do see where we've had some cases spike in some of the states, North Carolina, I see has sort of been on the rise and a couple of the other ones, which is to, you know, that's going to happen whenever you uh, open everything up. But hopefully everybody will be okay, be safe, and uh, we'll be able to get this thing under control and behind us and get back to the way things used to be. Not, Not to a new normal. I refuse to use that. We're not going to a new normal. We need to go back to the way that things used to be. So, yeah. 
we'll see how that all goes. But I I haven't been able to hit a flea market yet. I just haven't had the time. But our our buddy James Nish hit one uh, maybe Saturday, a local one that we we all frequent, and uh, he got a few good heads. But one, the one that surprised me is he picked up a Craftsman Connecticut pattern axe at a flea market in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Which is it's just mind blowing to me. Like yeah. you hardly ever see Connecticut axes here in Ohio. Yeah, I saw that one that he had posted. I was able to pick up one at that flea market. It was, of course, a genuine plum national, <laughs> which I thought for sure all the axe thrower murder hornet people were going to descend on me as soon as I bought it because I got a great deal on it. Um, and it was a Boy Scout one actually. And then um, back to our couple podcasts there ago, I was able to pick up a beveled king cutter stamped 228 underneath the eye. So that was a very interesting piece. Um, but enjoyed that. And again, the guy, he, he didn't want nothing for that. I didn't pay anything. That, was, that one was dirt cheap. But So, yeah, hopefully we can get back on track, get some flea markets going. I know the ones over here in PA that I like to frequent are still shut down, which is absolutely killing me. But hopefully it looks like July is going to be go time. So we will see how that all works and be able to get out there and get some good pieces. Uh, seems like guys online though, I mean, they're still selling and buying and everything like that. So that's good. You know, we talked about that, but we'll see how this all goes, but hopefully get back to the way that things used to be. So yeah, We'll see how that all goes. But what we're going to talk about today, uh, we're going to be a little bit all over the place, but we're going to concentrate, obviously, on axe history. We'll talk about a couple of the different manufacturers here. Been having some real good conversations with, with a bunch of the guys about history and them adding in um, what we were able to find and talk about and things like that. So I uh, figured that we talk a little bit about Kelly, and that seems to be, you know, obviously a lot of guys' favorites, very popular, obviously, one-time largest axe manufacturer in the world, blah, blah, blah. But there's some sort of history behind the scenes things there that a lot of guys don't know about that, again, I find very interesting. Um, maybe not everybody else does whenever it comes to history. But uh, a lot of stuff going on there, especially with W.C. Kelly. He's like the uh, Al Capone of the day whenever it comes to the axe industry, it looks like. So the guy's a total gangster. But Al. Before we kick this off, do you are you wanting to talk about without giving away sources or leads? All right, let's skip that. All right. <laughs> as far as like where the stuff is coming from, is that what you're talking about? Well, it has a unique story, but I don't know if you can tell it without giving away too much. Well, we'll talk about that on another day whenever that time comes. Uh, but basically it's just been through connections, talking to guys and gals, um, people that, you know, have had, you know, pieces of the history and have been doing research. So obviously, you know, True Blood, he's a big one. He's been helping me out a lot with uh, the historical pieces, especially around that Alexandria time, but then also with some of the later time, um, talking to some of the other guys this week, um, Douglas Downs. David Dennis, you know, Ryan Landon is, is an absolute research monster. And a few of the other guys that are out there just talking with them, bringing up questions, making sure that we had timelines right. So, like, one of the big questions this week was about with true temper and, like, when can we actually date a Kelly axe that is dated true temper? And the big culprit with that is that in one of the Kelly catalogs, there is the standard axe list, and this has been out there. Uh, there's a bunch of pictures of it on the various platforms, and it states Kelly, and then it has True Temper with it. And what that is is that so now everybody sees that, and it's dated standardized 1925 Axe List, and it has True Temper on it. So now everybody loses their mind because, well, it says True Temper, so they must have been using True Temper before 1930, whenever the merger, which is one thing we're going to talk about, it was not a buyout, it was a merger, in 1930 with American Fork and Ho Company, which we'll circle back around. But we have this standardized axe list dated 1925, and it has true temper on it. Blow up the world, and now they must have used true temper before that. And that is, in fact, not correct, because 
the catalog that that is in is in the 1930, 31, or 33 catalog. They used the 1925 list because it hadn't changed in seven, eight, nine years, and they just stamped True Temper on it. So True Temper was not on Kelly products as far as we know at this time prior to 1930. So that was the big question that we had got. Um, will that change? I mean, God, I hope not because now we got to blow everything up, but that <laughs> is from what I've seen, but that's where that issue came is just with using an older ax list in a newer catalog post that transition. So that's where a lot of that conversation got going with a couple of the guys and it, it was really good. So, um, but to you guys that have seen that as far as what I can tell, what I've seen, what I've been able to read, that's what's going on there. 1925 continued to be used. And you see that a lot. Man Edge does that. Warren does that with that standard access. Cause you got to remember in about 1921 is when they all got together and they whittled down that access to about 20, 21, 22 main patterns. And then they continued to use that for years going forward. So it didn't really change. So that's why you see a dated list continue to be used. So. That was a good discussion with a bunch of the guys. But back to Kelly. And so one of the other things then that we were able to figure out, and I was looking on a couple pieces that I had, is that you'll see the pieces that are stamped Kelly, and then they're also stamped True Temper. Right? You've yeah. seen those. We already talked about that a little bit, right? So th those are out there. Those are usually what's known as like that transitional piece right around 1930, 31, 32, whenever – Everything was going down with American Fork and Hoe. But we got to back up there a little bit to be able to sort of set the stage for what's going on there. So as we are primarily familiar with, we got Kelly in Alexandria. Kelly then moves to Charleston. That's right around 1904, 1905, depending on where we're at, maybe even a year earlier. They start in on axes about 1905. And that is when we have Kelly Axe Manufacturing Company. We see that it's very popular, um, especially with the Ravens. The guys like to be able to distinguish between the pre-1930 and the post-1930 Ravens. So we see the Kelly Axe Manufacturing Company. Now, what we've seen and what we've read is that there's also another stamping out there called Kelly Axe and Tool Company. And again, if you read on Lamont's work, it states in there that both of those names were used. But he doesn't really state why or why they would use two names or why there are two names. And sort of the general feeling with this, and I know I've stated this, I'm pretty sure I put it on blade forms or something way back in the day, almost pushing 10 years ago now, that both of those were used at the same time because that's how Lamont lays it out. And that's actually not correct. So, again, doing some research, uh, help with some other guys. Again, True Blood, thank you. Basically, what happened is that you had a reorganization with the Kelly Company in 1924 where they reorganized or reincorporated from Kelly Axon Manufacturing Company to Kelly Axon Tool Company. So what does that mean? That means then that that name had about a six to seven year run from 24 to 30, maybe 31, where then you see that Kelly Axon Tool Company name. I don't know if a lot of guys knew that, so now we can sort of narrow that that stamp down to those that six-year period, which to me is pretty cool because I know that's usually one of the main questions I get, right? What's the stamp mean? How old is it? Is it rare? And is it worth anything? Those are usually the big four questions I get. So with that now, we can sort of narrow that down. You're in that four, or excuse me, six, seven, eight-year window. The other point with that is that sometimes then you'll see the Kelly axes stamped with the true temper, which we just talked about. To my knowledge, I've never seen one that is stamped Kelly Axe Manufacturing Company and then also stamped true temper. I've never seen that, which makes sense because that name would not have been used around 1930. What do we got in 1930? Kelly Axe and Tool Company, which I know that that exists because I have three or four of those. True temper on the other side. And what that is is what I call a transitional piece after American Fork and Hoe Company comes in and they have the merger. They probably want to get their name on those products as soon as possible. They still had the Kelly Axon Tool Company dies. They had the regular just true temper die because that's normally what it just says, true temper with that, that uh, italicized font. You got that on the other side in order then to build that name recognition between the two. So 
Does that make sense with what I'm talking about there? Yeah. So that's, and you don't see that again with the other names. You only see that with that Kelly Axon Tool Company name. And you don't see it that often, but you will see it. Now that to me then means that in that transitional piece, that was probably a 1930 and 1931, maybe a 32. They probably had eliminated that by 32. I don't know that for a fact, but if you have one of those and that sort of points to that specific time frame, which again is pretty cool because that's very hard to do, especially with those Kelly products. Now, the other thing then is with American Fork and Hoe, as it's been stated, is that, you know, we have in 1930, them and Kelly get together, which we've always sort of been taught that American Fork and Hoe buys Kelly, which from what I can tell from research and uh, special thanks to Ryan Landon, we were talking about this and sort of uh, stumbled upon this Um what happens is that if, if you're not familiar with American Fork and Hoe, it had originally started right previous to 1900. It actually com- took the combination of like 16 different farm and implement tool companies and put them together into American Fork and Hoe, which was, uh, they're based out of Cleveland. So they come together and they're the world's biggest manufacturer of, again, shovels, rakes, hoes, different things like that, different household, um, implements and things right around then 1928 29 what what happens in 1929 world war ii world war ii does not happen in 1929 history history expert how about this how about the stock market oh that's right yeah so the stock market crashes in 1929 right i'm sorry it's fine um that's what i'm here for right so 1929, basically the world is falling in on itself. There's pandemonium and pandemic and the stock market is crashing. And I think Kelly sees the writing on the wall. The other thing with this then that we don't talk about is that the chainsaw was just starting to gain traction right now in the 20s. It was actually a German implement and they were importing them from Germany. Now they weren't in huge numbers or anything like that, but as they came then, Obviously, then loggers want to be using those because they're faster, more efficient. You can produce more lumber. You're going to get paid more, et cetera. So hopefully during this time, you didn't have to be a genius to read the writing on the wall and be like, man, the axe is in. We're in full decline by now, right? So 1929. What happens then is that American Fork and Hoe and Kelly actually merge. And so real quick, do you think <clears> – <throat> Do you think the crosscut saw slowed down the production of axes? Oh, there's no doubt. That was the original, one of the original death blows to the axe. And that that actually dates even farther back. You can go pre-1900 with that. I was going to say, it'd have to be more efficient to saw. It was. Now, you still had to to have your your falling wedge, though, right? Your falling cut. Yeah, I was going to say, didn't they wedge it with an axe and then... Saw. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how they did it. And that would save time. So now then, and we'll talk about this whenever we get up into the specialized age of the chainsaw, and that's where you get your undercutter axe. And it's, it's run that it had for yeah. almost, almost 20 years. But, um, but yeah, that would have been one of the original death blows to the axe because now you didn't need it on that whole other side of the tree. Again, depending on where you were in the country and, and things like that. But if we're talking out in the Pacific Northwest, that's why you see pictures of those guys, man, with those saws that are, you know, like here in Pennsylvania, whenever I go around the flea markets and antique ones, I think the longest one I've ever seen is eight foot. Yeah. I'm saying over here. You get out there, man. Eight foot is like a baby. Like, yeah. you know, don't even, don't even bring that to the party. Like we're talking 10, 12, even, I mean, you've seen them in the pictures. They're massive. Yeah. But yeah, that would have been the, the, the first initial. Real, real uh, hit to the axe, so to speak. Yes. By this time, things are just stacking against it. You got a lot going on. So again, 1920s, roaring 20s. You know, industry is taking off. Uh, everybody is is developing all kind of new technologies all across the board. And the axe, you know, as its primitive two-piece tool, you know, at this time it's highly disposable, right? You use it, toss it. Um, there's all kind of stuff that is stacking up against the axe. And it's it's just technology. It's evolution. Yeah. 
but then one of the things that we see then there back toward 1929 is that, you know, so we have, there's many different references out there now, and it says, um, you know, plan to manufacture farm implements. The American Fork and Hoe Company was incorporated in, in New Jersey with Cleveland as its main office. Two important mergers were effected in 1930. The Skelton Shovel Company of Dunkirk, New York, and the Kelly Axe and Tool Company of Charleston, West Virginia, adding to the original line of products of hand, hand shovels, axes, hammers, etc. So that proves then that, number one, it was a merger, and number two, the name Kelly Axe and Tool Company was in full effect by that time. Uh, so a lot of people think that American Fork and Hoe just went and bought them out. And there are some references out there that say that, but there are many, many more references actually in the day that show that that was a merger. Uh, there's also references out there that show Old Man Kelly on the board of the new company until then he passes away three years later in 1933. Then the members of the Kelly board that were under him, they then are then on the board of American Fork and Hoe Company. Which again, that leads to more of a merger than just a straight up buyout. So I always thought that that was pretty interesting. Um, but you know, you can read in references where basically American Fork and Hoe said, we have every other basically farm and, and home implement. We don't have an axe. So they went ahead and acquired Kelly. And I think that, you know, Kelly was, he was always talking with everybody. You can see it. There's a lot of different letters and a lot of different references. I mean, He's talking to the mans at Man Edge. He's talking to, um, you know, H.P. Stone up in Warren. He's talking to everybody and anybody that he can about axes. And I think he sort of saw the writing on the wall here. We got the chainsaws coming. We got more technological evolution. We got the stock market crash. I'm old, and I'm getting out. Yeah. The other thing with this, too, is that I think one of the deciding factors is so – you have his son, J.P. Kelly. Okay. J.P. Kelly just sort of disappears. He's off the map in 1915. Like you see him, his name is on, um, the chip slinger, uh, label. His name is on various patents that Kelly has. 1915, he's just nowhere to be found. And that's because he had a massive stroke and died in 1915, which we'll save that story for another day because there's a whole nother side story with that. So he doesn't have his son then to leave the company to, and I think that was probably in, into the whole thing with uh, with him selling to the American Fork and Hoe Company. So just something that I found interesting with the, the two different names of the company pre-1930, and then you go to American Fork and Hoe, which then they developed then what was known as Kelly Works. So Kelly Works is the name that we see after that. And what that is, that is the American Fork and Hoe axe-making division of the company. And one of the very first things that they did after they bought the company, or excuse me, see, even I screwed it up. After they had the merger, <laughs> they, they drastically decreased production on axes. Because uh, what you were going to see in 30, 31, and 32, up to about 33, you see a massive price drop. In axes, and I had posted that to my uh, to to the double bit double bit Facebook page with the Man Edge um, price list that I was able to get my hands on. And what was really interesting there is in 31 to 32, you see what was it like a four dollar price drop for a dozen axes? Let me see here. Yeah, 32 to 33, a, a dozen axes, single bit, no handle. And these are for the knot clipper. So this was Man Edge's top of the line. 1932, $13.20 a dozen. 1933, $9.20. Well, so you see a $4 drop. Now, what's interesting then, immediately then the next year, it goes right back up to 1320, but then the price holds for the next three years. So you don't see any axe price increase for the next three years. So from 32 to 36 span of, I guess you could say that would be five years. There's no price increases. Here's, here's a couple questions. So in all this literature, we always see per dozen whenever they're selling handles or heads or whatever, it's always per dozen. 
So are these dealer prices? Those are what's known as jobber prices. And jobber is depending on where you read. That's basically your, your fancy name for the salesman or the gentleman then that is delivering these and selling these axes then to the different hardware stores and things like that. Some references will actually call the jobber the hardware store. So those are the prices then that are going out to the salesman and to the hardware stores. Okay. Now, the vast majority of the time, you will see those price per dozen because that was just the common way. Because you got to remember, these axe companies are not selling to Joe Blow themselves, right? Like, I can't walk into Kelly Works in Charleston and go buy an axe. I can go to the hardware store down the street. You know, I might be able to buy one off of a salesman or those axes then are getting sold to the logging companies that are out in the West. Those are your two basic ones, hardware stores at this particular time, and then the professionals or the loggers that are on the list. So I'm not going to be dinking and dunking axes. I sell them, I'm selling them by the dozen. That was sort of the standard at the time. There there are references and there are boxes out there that pack them at the half dozen. Right. Like that. If you've ever seen that plum double life box, yep. that was that was a half dozen box. The other boxes are either a dozen or else you can fit two dozen in there. And they're usually sometimes marked on the outside of the box. So I wonder what the retail was on the retail side. Oh, do we have reference for retail prices or no? Oh yeah. Yeah, it's in there. Um, the ones that I got right here, these are later. These are 1957. Uh, the retail, I can't remember if I put that on there or not. Uh, yeah, I didn't put it on there, but I'll find that out. We'll get to it later. But it's usually like three or four dollars a dud over whatever the cost price is. Yeah. So, which back then, like again, if you do the the money calculators to say so, like what did you know, thirteen dollars and twenty cents. In 1930 money, what did that look like, you know, compared to now? It's, it's pretty interesting. Like, the axes were, were pretty expensive. So, uh, yeah, so $13.20 in 1932 is $232 today. So, pretty expensive. And that sort of, uh, you know, addresses the axes now. You can make the argument. They're on the severe decline. And really the, and I sort of posted this, you know, one of the things that saved the axe actually was the, the Great Depression and then World War II. Because then what happened is that as Germany, they were the main chainsaw importer as they're ramping up for wartime and everything like that. They do not import chainsaws and America was behind the game trying to develop their own chainsaws. So then we get into the late thirties. War's coming. America, for the most part, knows that it's a matter of time before they're going to go ahead and get in a war. They basically shift everything from any kind of, you know, manufacturing effort is all going to get steered towards a war. So the chainsaw sword gets put on hold. The axe has a little resurgence, and you see that in, like, 37, 38, 39. And, you know, a lot of companies then had contracts for World War II, with the various hatchets and the axes, you'll see that, you know, Plum has their line, Man Edge has their line, and they're, they're dated 42, 43, 44, 45. And that sort of brings back a little resurgence then of the axe, uh, which I thought was, was pretty neat. Once you get post World War II, then you see the absolute decline. The chainsaw comes back, the, just the manufacturing and the innovation uh, that America has. You know, they're, they're basically then America is the manufacturing hub for the whole entire world after World War II. You gotta remember, Europe is basically blown all to shit. England, Germany, France, they have very little manufacturing capability. Same with Italy, basically all of Europe, right? Um, so that leaves us. You know, we had ramped everything up. You had Rosie the Riveter and things like that. So now we are the manufacturing uh, basically tycoons for the whole entire world, that's then when you start to see the severe decline for the axe um, after World War II. 
the other thing then that you'll see is what now I'm sort of calling the death of the axe. And we had talked about this a little bit earlier. So, you know, you get post-World War II, you get the GI Bill, which basically states that, you know, soldiers, they're going to get a house. They have the ability to really be able to get great deals on homes. This is then when you see the rise of the suburbs, because obviously you have a lot of the manufacturing is in and around the cities, but people don't want to live in and around the cities because of the conditions there. So now we're building uh, the suburbs. The rise of the automobile is obviously in, in, it's just going bonkers. So now people can live, you know, five, 10, 15 minutes outside the city. You got your little white picket fence. You got your yard. That changes the whole dynamic then for the axe game. And I'll reread the letter. I'd already read this to killer. This might be my new favorite letter that is, that I have, but was able to get my hands on this. This is an original letter from Managed Tool Company. You can't frame that. Hang it up. Um, and this is, um, this is really from the, the vice president, H.E. Manbeck. And this is going out to various jobbers, again, hardware stores, merchandisers, retailers. And this is from August 1955. It says, gentlemen, years ago, axes were bought by woodsmen and farmers, and that just about covered the total market. But we are in the process of what Fortune magazine refers to as our changing American market. It points specifically to people who are moving out to the suburbs. They have outdoor grills and indoor fireplaces and need axes to cut kindling wood for both. They have the added leisure time to enjoy in a sportsman's camp, where a sportsman's axe is always needed. And they have joined the do-it-yourself clan in clearing out the underbrush and trimming trees on their suburban lots. And these people can't afford to buy tools on impulse. Accordingly, we have directed our new catalog towards these new axe buyers. You might say our methods have gone modern while our axes, hammers, and hatchets are rooted in our century-old traditions made of the finest axe steels by fifth-generation craftsmen. You can sell any man axe with the confidence that no finer edge tools are made in America. Before long, your jobbers, salesmen, will call on you. We urge you to survey your market, examine this catalog, and take advantage of the sales aids, which include ad mats, radio scripts, and merchandising suggestions. That will, that will help you reach this big new market, so logically referred to as Suburbia USA. Yours very truly, Managed Tool Company. So as you can see now, the game has switched. They're going after that suburban market. And right around this time, man also de uh, develops what's known as its rapid line. So you have uh, the rapid digger, the rapid axe, the rapid hoe, the rapid pick, everything that's tailored towards that family that owns that lot in suburbia with your basic around the house chores. So the game is, has now totally switched. And you see this a lot with the catalogs right around this time. So we got true temper catalogs, 1954, as I've showed you. They don't even talk about axes. What do they talk about? They talk about the tomahawk. They talk about the Tommy axe and they talk about hatchets. They talk about a cruiser, and then they talk about boys' axe. That's their main talking points on axes. This is in 1954. So you got all the hatchets and things like that. They make mention in here, I, I find it hilarious. It says, true temper, fancy, and special hatchets. Each is designed to exacting specifications. So lathing hatchets, shingling hatchets, half hatchets, rig builder, box hatchet, produce hatchet, on and on. They got hammers in here. Hammer is obviously the big thing. Construction is going crazy, right? People are building houses as fast as they possibly can. There's not one actual axe in this catalog. There's not a single bed axe. There's not a double bed axe of any kind of like four, four and a half pound size. It's not there because it doesn't make any sense because the only people that are going to be buying that are maybe the companies out on the Pacific Northwest. So 55 to me, is the official slash unofficial. That's the end of the golden age. Mm -hmm. And I know I wasn't born in 55. I was born 20 years later in 75. So, which makes sense 
because the axes that guys my age, 40, 45, 50, the ones that we're familiar with are what? Your basic flint edges, your basic wood slashers, those blue painted columns, and then mm-hmm. maybe even like Stanley or stuff like that, right? Craftsman. Craftsman axe, exactly. Good point. Those are the ones. So like these quality axes, being able to put time and money into them, those days are done by about the 50s, 55. And in reality, the Norland line was around when we were coming up. Norland line. So that's sort of, you know, now we come back around, right? Because now, you know, Norland uh, was basically created for those people, suburbia people. And what are they doing? They're going camping. They're going to their camp that they have maybe, you know, up in the National Forest or something like that. They're sportsmen, right? They're going hunting. They're going to do stuff. So they take those lines and they basically sort of, you know, redo those lines. They put the, hey, this is for the hunter, the outdoorsman, the camper, and they put that spin on it. Yep. And then market it and retail it to them. Yeah, 100%. And they, they capitalized on that hard. They did. They did. I have that in the shareholder meetings where you could see what they made year over year. And their other products, axes, stuff like that, or tanking, Norland is going bonkers where they're selling all this stuff. So it just goes to show you the time, the market, how it had to change. And again, for these companies that weren't willing to do that, what do you see? Collins buys Warren, went 1950. Man buys Collins, went 1966. Kelly's already out of the game for the most part. You know, by 1930, they're still going with American Fork and Hoe. Plum is still around, but actually by 50s and after, what a lot of guys don't know is Man Edge is actually making a lot of the plum products by then. Yeah. So. Did they have, do the permabond? What's that, bud? Did Man do the permabond? That I don't know for a fact. I'm going to say no. I don't think that they did. I think that was always a plum only. But there were there were some of those heads, though, that I know were made by Man. There was that, that one All-American. And some Oops. of those were permabond and some weren't. But those were made by Man at some point. Somebody else used the permabond type. Collins had they had their bonded line, bonded, which, okay. was, which was actually two different. Now it still had a wooden wedge and everything, and they advertised that as their Cadillac, right? Which doesn't make a lot of sense because who wants to put a lot of money into an axe at this particular time when I'm probably not going to need it? Now those came two different ways. Those came either regular wedge, or then there was at one time a green. Uh, permabond that Collins had used. It wasn't very popular. You see it mostly in hatchets. Yeah. Uh, you don't see them in a lot of the big axes at all, but they did use that. But um, there are some other companies then that, that stole that after afterwards. Like True Temper, like Plum and True Temper used to go just toe-to-toe with uh, that, the hammers. That's where those guys went to battle. So I, I vaguely remember seeing like a blue or a black permabond. Type substance. Blue, uh, didn't, uh, who was one of the Swedes that used the blue? Who was that? Oh, that's right. Yeah. It might HB or something. Yeah. Or Holt, yeah, Holtzbrook. Yeah. They used the, they Somebody, had that. That's right. Yeah. Cause I remember having to drill one of those out and it was absolutely the worst experience I've ever had. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, oh, geez. It's never fun. But that just, you know, was a little bit of the axe history and sort of the, uh, like what was going on there. Um, obviously there's way more to it than that. With, you know, as we see then coming up, um, I know that I w- I've been able to get true temper pricing lists and now I have 73, 74 and 75. So I think we had mentioned this either one podcast or two podcasts ago that the tomahawk, the true temper tomahawk that a lot of guys like it disappears and it's not in the 75 price list. It's in the 74 price list that's here in my hand. Um, but then what's interesting is so you have three choices of axes, Kelly Perfect, Flint Edge, and the Wood Slasher. And the Flint Edge and the Wood Slasher have paper labels on it, while the Kelly Perfect does not. It's not even stamped. It has the blue bevels, but it does not show the head actually being stamped Kelly Perfect, yeah. which is very interesting. And then your prices on these, so let's see. If you were to get a four-pound Kelly Perfect, what is this? This is a double bit. This is a single bit. So we'll, we'll keep this in line here. Single bit, four pound, Kelly Perfect, 
listed retail, thirteen eighty nine. Same thing, Flint Edge, thirteen nineteen. Wood Slasher, single bit, four pound. So guess what? It doesn't even come in a four pound. Three and a half is as large as it goes. Ten dollars ninety nine cents. So very interesting to see those prices on there. The largest axe that you could get in 1974 would have been a four-pound double-bit Kelly Perfect or Flint Edge. It would have cost you either $14.59 or $14.19 with that silver foil label on there that just says Kelly. Yeah. So at this time, 1974, a Flint Edge would have been 40 cents less than a Kelly Perfect, and I'm willing to bet that there is actually no difference between the two. Now, you could still get what's known as special purpose axe. You can get a miner's, a constructor's, which is a rafter's. So the raftering axe got repurposed to a constructor axe. You then had a Pulaski and you had a fireman. Now, they have them labeled under sportsman axes. So these are basically hatchets, but they gave them a fancy name. So you have the rocket, which is the metal one, the metal shank, metal handle with the rubber handle. You have the rocket, you have the jet rocket, you have the hunter's axe, and then you have the Tommy's axe, and then the tomahawk. Then you have what's known as sportsman's axes, but long handle. That's You have the Hudson Bay, and then you have the wood slasher. And those came in both patterns. Would you care to guess what a sheath would cost for a Hudson Bay axe in uh, 1974? $1.50. That would be your suggested uh, acquisition cost. Retail was $2.49. <laughs> and then you had all your hatchet lines and things like that. So as you can see, by 1974, these are it, it's, it's definitely done, which is a shame. But, I mean, it makes sense with where people were and things like that. So um, and how those lines decreased over time, and we are to where we're at now. So... Very interesting stuff, you know, the axe history and everything that goes into it. I think whenever guys look and they see and like, hey, you know, I got this Flint Edge or hey, I got this uh, knot clipper or I got this Legitimus. And what I'm trying to do now is that whenever we're talking about the history, I'm trying to put in other pieces of the puzzle as far as what was going on in America to really be able to tie that all together with that history piece so that we get a better understanding of, all right, so the axe was in decline, but why was that? Obviously, we know about the chainsaw, but then why did it have a little resurgence? Oh, well, we had the Great Depression. You had the CCC being developed in 1933, and then you had World War II, which actually helped the axe out there for a little bit. If those two things don't happen, who knows? The axe might be out of the game by 1940 altogether. Yeah. So it's very interesting. And then the kickers then to come off that, you know, to your point, Norland, I think, is a great example of that. Um, you sort of see a little bit of that with like, you know, that, that Hudson Bay and trying to sell that along those lines, but it's pretty interesting. But if you read in uh, a couple of the books and things, um, like Larry McPhail's book, it's very interesting to see what, what is in there is, I don't want to use the word wrong. I guess it's just needs, needs drastically updated. Yeah. Especially with like the Kelly line and everything like that. It's it's amazing, again, that these guys had the information that they had, but what he has in here is, again, it just needs updated. I don't I don't want to say it's wrong, because I you know they didn't put it out there with uh, with the intent um, to be wrong. So like he says in 1930, the depression taking its toll and Kelly interest sold out to another giant, the American Fork and Hoe. Okay, we know that's not technically correct. Here's the other kicker, and a lot of guys get this messed up. But in 1949, a new company, True Temper Corporation, was in, introduced selling both Kelly and True Temper axes. That's not quite 100% true. True Temper was just sort of like the reorganization and reformulation of what American Fork and Hoe was doing. Um, but what we should do is sometime we need to talk about the whole entire Kelly timeline because it, it's, it gets totally messed up after 1960 with who's buying it and different corporations that, had no interest in axes. Now they're just they're buying it for the actual uh, regular house implements. So 
Uh, it's, it's pretty interesting, like, with what he says in there. The other thing that they talk about is that Kelly had their own handle factory in Tennessee, which I've read where they did and I've read where they didn't. Um, so we got to dig in on that a little bit too. So and find out what that's all about. But, uh, the, the history behind the company, obviously guys like, you know, true blood and stuff like that, they can tell you it's with them moving and everything and, and trying to get everything straight. You know, I think from like 1900 to 1920, when, you know, the comp, everything was trying to go and, you know, the industrialization age and everything was just taken off. That was really like the last heyday there, like those last two decades. Yeah. But I guess we'll see. So what it's else you got there? It it's is. amazing the layers to all this. It's just incredible. Yeah. I mean, you know, so we're not even, you know, you're not talking about like the different hardware stores and who was trying to sell axes and then still all the different stampings and paper labels and like why they made those and trying to sell that product. Now it becomes more clear that, that the competition there with the dying market would have been cutthroat. So like, that's why you see the black Raven. That's why you see the registered. And that's why you see the fancy paper labels. Cause man, you had to sell that product. You had to. But when you look at it from the outside, though, you think about it, we're we're dissecting 120 years of axe history, basically, because, you know, we we basically started 1900s, I guess 1890s, so 130 years. Yeah, I mean, and that's really sort of like what we know before that, then you're into your individual blacksmiths that, you know, are somewhat big, but not really that big. So like, you know. Beatty and Son comes to mind. Uh, there's those older Pennsylvania makers, Stricker, Stoller. And those guys, those, they were sprinkled all up and down the East Coast. And yeah. then you sort of had, you know, as that industrialization, you had the ability to be able to produce steel and iron cheaply, you know, Bessemer process, Kelly and that whole thing. You know, Kelly, you know, there's arguments out there that he's the one that actually developed the Bessemer process and he sort of got cheated out of it. There had to have been a ton of blacksmiths on, our, on the West Coast, too. There were. And so, like, if you read, um, they would actually not open up. And, again, we're talking real early now, so, like, early 1800s, maybe even late 1700s, as the country expanded west. Uh, if you could not actually open a settlement or a town or a fort, again, depending on what time frame, without having a blacksmith to do everything that you need to do. And so they would actually give the blacksmith an incentive. They would either get their own free lot, which is usually right in the middle of town, and they didn't have to pay anything for it if they absolutely promised to stay there for X amount of time. Yeah. They got that, and then they could sell their goods. Sometimes they didn't have to pay any taxes. So they used to incentivize that big time to make sure that that blacksmith wouldn't want them. wonder when they started logging the West. As far as an exact date, I don't know. That uh, I had to get out there and talk to one of the West Coast guys. Maybe Colby would know or something like that. I mean, it's it's early because they would have tried to, you know, those the redwoods, um, you know, the the lumber from the Pacific Northwest, the lumber from Wisconsin, and the lumber from Michigan is basically what built the country. Yeah. So, you know, I think I read somewhere, and I'd have to look this back up. It was. One third the population of Norway immigrated to Wisconsin in like 18, in like 1870. I want to say when that was 1860, 1870. And they were all logging and they were able to produce like 50 million board feet a year from Wisconsin. Wow. So, I mean, you know, you had some heavy duty logging. So 1850s probably out on the, out on the West Coast there. I guess, you know, again, I don't know. I'd have to look that up, but that is a good question. But just as the as the country went, you know, the rise and then the ultimate fall of it. So it's still staggering to me. I mean, I love just getting lost in all that stuff. Yeah. But just think of all of what we still don't know. Right. Keep, it's keeps me up at night. <laughs> so we'll see. We may never know. Oh, we'll know. <laughs> we'll know. I'll keep digging. Miller's going to get to the bottom of all of it. 
we'll know. We got some interesting stuff coming up with Man Edge, some of the paperwork that I was able to uh, gather from there. Um, very interesting just to see, like, what guys made. Uh, what did I tell you? Like, in 1897, a foreman for Man Edge Tool made $18 a week. Yeah. Uh, so just stop and think about that. And that's working six days, six, uh, usually 10 to 12-hour days. You know, this was before... Uh, you know, any kind of labor unions or anything like that, that, that those didn't come around until like the mid 1930s. You know, guys were working whatever they were told to, getting paid, you know, nothing. Uh, they had on there that like a roller, whatever that guy did, he made 30 cents a day. Uh, but what a lot of those companies though were able to do whenever axes were being sold is that they were able to provide actually for the time pretty good wages and income for their families to be able then to, you know, thrive and survive. So it was a very important part of history. So, but we will see. So that was your, uh, that was your once over then on some of the history from 19, what, 20 through 1970, mostly with Kelly. So we'll see. I don't know. It's interesting. We still got more to come. Like I said, Man Edge and some of the paperwork there and what that whole company looked like. The history with them is an absolute mess because you have the original man coming over here in like the early 1700s. What a lot of guys don't know is that man was actually out of Man Edge tool by like 1925. They were out. Um, the one brother had to get rid of the other brother because he was a raging alcoholic. And then the <laughs> other brother comes back. And he gets he gets rid of the other brother because he can't do his job as president well enough, so they vote him out. I mean, it's a it's a big family mess. And like you think Kelly is something as far as history and trying to put it all together. Man Edge is an absolute nightmare with everything going on. Plants are burning down. That was the one thing. Like axe plants in like the late 1800s, early 1900s, they just burned down. I don't, I'm not sure if they weren't all shady, but <laughs> oh, we're on fire. We're burning down. But I think a lot of that, and we sort of talked about that with True Blood whenever he was on, you know, stuff just burning down and, you know, the insurance payments four times what it was actually worth. Yeah. But we'll see. But what else you got? Let's wrap this up, buddy. That's it for me, man. All right. So appreciate everybody taking the time. Listen, going down a little bit of uh, history lane here with Kelly. We will be back. Next week, we got to sort of tweak that a little bit. Uh, I start a new job, which is sort of interesting here in the million, uh, middle of Corona time. There's 30 million unemployed people, and I'm starting a new job. So I got to see how this is going to affect our ability to record and everything for the podcast. But hopefully we'll be able to get that figured out and keep that going. Um, but we'll be back next week, talk about this or the other. If anybody has any questions or comments, send them in. Send them to the uh, to the Instagram account for the uh, Legitimus Podcast, if you have some specific questions, we'll start taking those and seeing what we can do to answer those. Comments, always uh, leave those so that we get a little bit of feedback. Otherwise, man, we'll go from there. We appreciate everybody listening. Everybody stay safe. Enjoy the summer. Later. See you guys.